Welcome to a special edition of Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfrey, your host, and this is our two-year anniversary program. That's right, it was two years ago on November 15th, 2017, when we kicked off the Transit Unplugged podcast. And what a two years it's been. I want to thank a couple of the people who were here at the beginning, Eliana Franco and Nick Fury from Trapeze Marketing, who helped us get this whole program going and helped us pick out the theme music. It's Eliana's voice you hear introduced me when we're there. And Nick remains on scene to help us do all the behind the scenes work that it takes to put on a podcast while I'm out actually doing the on-site interviews. And that is something that's unique about our podcast is that every one of our interviews of transit CEOs and executives takes place on site, usually at their location where I'm able to tour the operations and oftentimes teach a class to the staff at the agency and really get to know what's going on, spend usually a half a day or a whole day with the CEO of the transit system. We have interviewed over 60 transit CEOs and executives around the world. Last year, we ranked number 11 on iTunes business podcasts, and now we're hosting CEO roundtables around the world at various conferences and uh, where we have some of the CEOs sit up on a platform and we use the same basic format where I ask three primary questions. Tell us about yourself and your background. Tell us about your current projects and challenges and victories. And tell us about what's coming in the future. Our podcast really follows Aristotelian logic where we think in threes. And uh, we just I basically ask them about those things and then the conversation goes from there. It's different than many other podcasts because it's a friendly interview where I allow the guests to really... Uh, tell their own story. That's what makes it different. I don't have an agenda going in there. I'm just interested in them telling their own story. And having been a CEO myself in Baltimore, I understand what it's like to run an agency. And so we really like to do what is called in America inside baseball, where we get into some of the details of their transit systems. We have been recognized um, by APTA this past year, the American Public Transportation Association, with a first place Ad Wheel Awards. And we also do a once a quarter innovation show where we focus on some new special innovation for our transit world. And this year we've had a number of international guests. We've gone to Australia where I spent a week, uh, to the United Kingdom where I spent a week interviewing CEOs around there, to Denmark, Switzerland, and now this guest today is finalizing our four-part series in Canada. And our guest is Phil Verster. He is the CEO of Metrolinks, which is a crown agency that manages and integrates road and public transport in the Toronto and Hamilton areas. They they manage what's called Go Transit, which stands for the Government of Ontario. They run bus, commuter train, and an express service to the airport. Uh, they have lots of expansion projects. Not only are they like an MPO for the state, but they also manage a lot of the construction projects. And uh, they've got um, the Go expansion with four consortiums and $30 billion in subway expansion. They are the Toronto area's regional transit planner. And uh, an interesting tidbit is they have the largest number of free parking spots of anybody in North America, 70,000 free parking spots at all their facilities. They um, operate 60 million train trips and 17 million bus trips a year. Phil Verster uh, has a plan to make Metrolinks into more of like a business agency where the employees and stakeholders understand the customer's lifetime value and customers receive more value when they use the system and the burden to the taxpayers is reduced and he keeps safety as his number one priority. Phil has a, a unique leadership uh, style there where he's really running an efficient agency. They even brought in real customer-centric changes, such as a new concept that um, when the commuter train passengers 
end their day, they can order their groceries online. And when they get back to the train station, they'll be in a refrigerated locker for them to pick up. Really cool innovations like that that he's leading. I think you'll really enjoy this podcast interview as we celebrate two years of Transit Unplugged with a very special guest, Phil Verster, CEO of Metrolinx. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. I'm excited to be in Toronto today in downtown with the CEO of Metrolinx, Phil Verster. Thanks so much for having us in today. Thanks, Paul. It's good to talk to you. Yes. In our whirlwind tour today, we were able to ride some of your system and come in on the train system, the GO system. We got to tour some of your operations. Um, tell us about your system itself. It's a fascinating system and the approach that you're the planning organization for this whole Ontario um, province. Tell us kind of how it all works. Yeah, so Paul, what's really exciting about where we are today is that we are in a massive phase of expansion here in Toronto. Over the last year and a half, we have focused on improving the utility we get out of our assets. Well, we are now year on year increasing our services, service capacity we're putting out there by around 25%. Really? And, and, and that's... That's dramatic. It, it is. And, and what's good to say about that um, quite a lot of it is from just being more efficient in terms of how we plan our logistics of our overland rail or heavy rail solutions. Um, and part of it is about what we call early works, which are sort of minor adjustments to the railway, add a bit of signaling here, add a bit of track over there, um, and just relieve bottlenecks so we run more trains. So we think we're gonna cap out at around a 60% overall improvement in capacity over, the, over a two and a half year period, somewhere um, mid 2020. But here's the thing, we are also investing a substantial amount of money in, in strengthening the overland heavy rail solution, which is basically the regional rail um, coming in from the region into Toronto and we'll be investing close on to 30, million, $30 billion into that. That's a, that's a small error, that between 30 million and 30 yes, billion. Yeah, yeah. So it's a well, 30 billion investment, and, and we'll be doing that over the next five years. So the service itself, let's, let's uh, kind of put a circle around. Tell me what service you run, where it runs, what kind of service it is, those kind of things. Right, so we basically run three different types of services. We, okay. we run a, a regional service that comes in from sort of seven directions into the city, along our Lakeshore West, our Lakeshore East, the Milton Line, the Kitchener Line, the Barry Line, the Richmond Hill Line, and the Stover Line. And, and it's basically radial feeds into, into the city. It's very traditional. Commuter train. Commuter train, right. um, regional train. Right. Heavy rail, diesel Heavy rail, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. 12, 10, 10 bi-levels consist, 12 bi-levels consist, huge old locos, beautiful, yes. beautiful old style engineering. We're very excited about how that can change in the future to electrical multiple units as we electrify, okay. run, run more shorter trains in the off-peak period. And that's part of this big business case for the $30 billion investment we've got and, and we're investing in the next five years or so. Then we've got a second sort of service group, which is a bus service group. 
that sort of runs east to west, where all of the radial lines run mostly um, north to south. Okay. Uh, we've got bus, GO bus service runs east to west, which we are um, strengthening with a more targeted fo targeted focus on those bus services to Is be... Is that like a commuter bus service commu itself? Well, Between it's a commu towns coming yeah, into Toronto? Yeah, it's currently it is, it is um, a little bit of buses, commuter towns, bus meets rail. Okay. Sort of bring people to rail network. Right. Um, we're going to change that to make the bus service not necessarily preeminence being to connect to rail. But to run it along corridors, which is high, which are high-intensity corridors for people that want to use bus and which train will never serve. Okay. Such as connection to between big shopping centers, hospitals, universities. We have a substantial proportion of the market for university students in the Greater Toronto area. That's great. So, so we are focusing that as a service, and then we've got a third group that is. LRTs or light rail transit solutions and subways. Um, in the last year, the Premier has announced that we will now take on the subway investment program as well, which is a tw another 28 billion of investment over the next five years. So for those extra hours we had free between 11 o'clock at night and 12 o'clock at night to sleep. We right. will now spend on subways <laughs> yes. to also build a huge subway program. But we are building LRTs across the region. Um, Eglinton LRT will be transformational for the downtown to midtown area in Toronto. And you're close to finishing that, right? Yeah, 2021, yeah. September 2021. It's been a challenge. It's been a fantastic challenge, though. Great collaboration built up with our supply chain to get that over the line. Oh, I bet you, yeah. And we now have um, Hamilton um, and her Ontario in the final stages of, of a bidding cycle. And the, the really key one we awarded last year was Finch LRT, which okay. will transform the the northwest part of the city as well. So those are the three big categories, and we work closely with colleagues that are in the in the municipal transit authorities, such as TTC and Mississauga, My Way, and Viva Next up in York, in order to um, to actually run services on a day-to-day -day basis. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Canadian uh, form of government, et cetera, you're part of <coughs> Ontario, which is a province, which in America might be called a state, right? That's right. Yeah, so you're a statewide agency, <coughs> but in addition to running commuter train and commuter rail and building almost like a P3 style project of light rail, you're also the provincial wide planning organization for that's transportation, right. is that that's right? right. That, Can you tell right. us about that? Yeah, so, so, in our mandate, we have a commitment to deliver a regional transportation plan every couple of years. Okay. I myself, I'm, I'm a hardcore engineer and operator, and you know, I, I think planners are interesting people, but planners need to be really clear in their plans so that we can get on and build stuff. <laughs> and so there you go, man yeah. after my own heart, get yeah. it done. <laughs> so there's a, a healthy degree of innovation that we need to unlock in our planning process. I'm not always convinced transit planning is as innovative as it can be. Mm. Transit planning is sometimes very much along the lines of what people are familiar with and what has been done before. 
And I think there, there are huge opportunities for us to be more innovative with planning. And, and we've done something recently with our subway, um, the subways we've inherited from the TTC to come up with more innovative solutions rather than stick to, to traditional formulas. That's no reflection on the TTC or on planners in general. It's just, I have this sense that in transit, we sometimes err on the side of the known rather than on the side of the innovative. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's just a personal thing. So your question is right though. We, we do the planning in the province um, and we continuously up the game on that. So tell me how that, people are familiar with Toronto Transit Commission. Our, yeah. our, our buddy, Andy Byford Andy was Byford, there for yeah. Andy's a good friend. York, yeah. Yeah. And, and now you've got Rick there, but tell us about how you interact with TTC so they can kind of understand that interlink. If you look at the, the multiple levels at which we interact, I mean, Rick and Andy before him, um, Rick now, the first, firstly at the CEO level, <laughs> we are all close colleagues and what is so, what is so powerful here in Toronto is transit investment has been falling behind the demand for so long. Mm. All of us that are involved in transit want the same thing. Yes. And basically that same thing is we want to move more people, we want to create more customer satisfaction. And to be honest, we just want ridership to go up and the revenue that accrues to transit to go up as well. We work closely with, we've got 11 agencies while we're at the provincial level, at the municipal level, we have 11 transit agencies that we collaborate with. Like HSR, I was just there yesterday with Debbie. That's right. Yes. And, yeah. and so, so, so our colleagues in Hamilton is, is a good example. And what we, do, what we do with them is we work through how to implement Presto, which is our fare management card that allows people to travel on any of the um, transit solutions they have and to transfer and get fare discounts when they transfer between fare zones oh, of the different municipalities. We can do more, let me be clear, Paul. We can do a lot more on fare integration. I don't think we've got the right formula yet for setting fares and integrating fares across the region, but we are all energized around that and we, we will get a good outcome on that. But we work together on our projects. It's impossible for me to build even my over, overland heavy rail solutions in Toronto without collaboration of the city of Toronto, the city of Mississauga, city of York. Just think about it, building an LRT down in, in Hamilton or her Ontario just cannot be done without collaboration with the cities. Right. And, and, and what binds us and brings us together is that common focus on what transit can do economically for the region. It seems like Canada just recently maybe has new impetus for mass transit and new money coming in from the federal government as well. Is that right? I think that's definitely right. Yeah. I think what is, uh, what, is, what is behind this awareness of what transit can do is an increased understanding of the economic benefits of transit. Um, I'll give you a very good example. Our regional rail expansion, and we've done a transit benefits only analysis of which, if you look at the transit benefits, about 85% of that bucket of transit benefits are basically journey time savings mm. from people traveling by public transit and not be in, in, in stuck, not being stuck in, uh, in traffic. Uh, the benefits that accrues from a transit investment is 
$2.60 for every single dollar spent in transit wow. on our RAR expansion. So it's a nearly three to one return that you get on your investment. That's good economics. It's good economics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on top of that, that's just the economic benefits. If you look at the financial hard cash, um, my implementation of uh, this regional transit solution for us um, just at the go level, which is the regional level, will, will take us from an organization currently with a subsidy of around 36% for my services to a break-even business. I wanted to talk to and you that about makes, that. And that makes transit profitable. Yes. And, and that's huge. So tell us about that. Matt Llewellyn, your spokesman today, was telling me that your goal is to kind of be almost self-sufficient in a sense that way, where your fare box recovery and the other innovative things you're doing will help you so you won't need as much investment. Is that right? Absolutely. Tell me about that, what your vision Absolutely. is and how you're making that happen, because that's very innovative. Yeah, so sometimes break-even and profitable businesses are seen as businesses that really succeed to price it right. Price it, the more expensive you price it, the better your chances of breaking even. That's obviously a fallacy because there's a return curve and you need to figure out what's the ideal right level to set the price right. at. Right. And, and so I actually think a break-even business or a profitable business has got partly to do with pricing. Obviously, you've got to price it right. But it's got to do with customer satisfaction. It's got to do with uh, good reputation. It's got to do with service. You've got to figure out what is the right service model. And service models doesn't always mean just what you just give in terms of a transit company, but is what do you expose your customer to? For example, we're investing in advertising and what we call non-fair revenue sources significantly. And the uptake of that is huge. I've got a recent campaign, and this may sound silly to your listeners, but it's actually quite important, to name stations. I've got big organizations that want their, their brand and their yes. name associated with some of my stations. And if they're willing to pay for the privilege for it, I'm willing to take their money from them. Yes. And that's one way. You reduce the public subsidy, Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. What about the food thing you're doing? Tell me about that, because that's a way you're helping your customers with customer satisfaction, but also maybe a way to make a little money, right? Yeah, so we've worked very closely with one of our big, biggest supermarket chains over here, and we now have same day, same day ordered order fulfillment, whereby if someone during the day, before I think it's something like ten o'clock in the morning, uh, place a, a, a internet-based order with with Loblaws, which is the the chain grocery store grocery store chain. They can pick up their groceries at their home station from a, a refrigerated container that is located there where they can just get their groceries on their way home. Is there somebody in there or is it in lockers where they would pick it up? It's in lock lockers with an automated lock coded lock release. Yes. And it's it's coming back to what is your value offer that right. you make for that you make to a customer that is that has a time-precious view of the world. Yes, these are commuters and who've taken your train exactly. in a half hour to an hour, gotten worked all day, coming. They don't want to go to the grocery store, right? They'd like to pick up their groceries exactly. right there. If that saves them 45 minutes, that's 45 minutes more with family. And, right. And, uh, How did you come up with that idea? I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, I saw that a couple of years ago in South Korea, of all places. Oh, okay. And it's interesting how when you travel the world, you pick these ideas yeah. and, it, it, and it helps. But then more, in terms, of our, in terms of our ridership and fare revenue, 
traditionally, our railway was built on these radial feeds into the city. Okay. And I want to stimulate short-distance journeys out of the city and between nodes or stations out on the city. So I've come up with a fair solution, which is a, where we take our base fare and reduce the base fare from $4.70 to $3.70. And we've thought about that very carefully because there's a payback period of where the increased ridership from a lower fare pays for the, the lost fare, the lost dollar, by reducing the fare from $4.70 $3.70. And I think the point here for us, Paul, is, is we're going at this very... We have basically turned what is an agency into a business. And I think that's actually an important mindset shift Transit is not just the public service. It's a business. And if you want to give the best public service and reduce the burden on taxpayers most, you as the, as the custodian of the, uh, and, and, and the management of an agency, you've got to run it as a business. You've got to get, make good business decisions because in the end, that's what's going to reduce the burden on taxpayers. I'll give you one more example. Okay, great. In the past, we used to build stations and stations can cost between 40 and 240 million, depending on where you build it. And we've made a distinct change about a year ago where we said, no, 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 we're going to work with developers because we build these stations and people build a development right next to the station and benefit from the transit investment that we have made. And so now we're working with developers to build stations at no cost to the taxpayers. We've already concluded two deals like that, which has already banked us more than a quarter of a, of a billion dollars of benefit, which wow. taxpayers don't have to pay for. We've got nine other stations that are being developed with developers, uh, jointly with developers, which would have a one and a half billion dollar benefit for the province over the next 10 years. Now, one and a half billion dollars may not sound like much when you think of all of these big numbers associated with transit, but that's money that doesn't come out of a taxpayer's pocket anymore, and that's therefore great to do. And I think these are the types of business things that are really important. I bet you're a popular man up here, especially with the politicians. They don't have to give you as much money, right? <laughs> well, you know, popularity with politicians is always, uh, always a difficult, difficult thing, isn't it? You well, would know. You I was know. elected official, yeah, I know what that's about. You would know. So tell me about yourself, though, your background. You've got a fascinating approach to transit, being business, and you came from Scotland. You and I were just talking about that, where you worked there for a while, Scott Rail, right? Yeah. Uh, over in Britain, and how there's a much more entrepreneurial view of transit in Great Britain, I think, than we have here. Tell me about your background, how you ended up here. Yeah, I spent about half, probably more than half my career in the private sector, and therefore I'm not necessarily sort of from of the same sort of experience base as yes. people that have traditionally been in, the, in, in public sector roles. And that doesn't mean it's either good or bad, it just means it's different. Right. What was interesting about the role in Scotland, which was very innovative, in Scotland, I was the CEO of an organization, a joint venture of two organizations, a public sector infrastructure management organization and a private sector customer-facing front-end service um, organization, all running ScotRail as an operation. And that is sort of, is, that's sort of typical in Europe, 
because the infrastructure are utilized by many transit operators, so it's a monopolistic right. asset in a sense. That's called network rail, right? That's called network rail. Right. So part of network rail reported into me okay. as part of the joint venture, and then part of Abellio, which is a, a, a spin-off of the Dutch railways as a private sector company reporting to me, and we made the two, uh, two work together in a joint venture. Now, what's novel about that type of structure in the European legislative and regulatory framework for railways is that it's not often done like that. But what's un indisputable is that when you have a franchise, and therefore, as in the UK, with revenue risk transfer, mm -hmm to a private sector entity, you are at the sharp end of understanding how important <laughs> revenue is and customer ridership numbers are. Absolutely. And if you want to make profit, you have to entice riders onto your railway. And this has been transformational over the last 15 to 20 years, since 1995, when the UK privatized its railways. Um, and that the, where the customer service end was privatized and was allowed to bid for franchises based on revenue return projections and therefore make money by having more riders through a franchise that you buy for a fixed period of time. And I think that type of thinking is really necessary in, 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 um, in North America um, because what it does is it just changes your perspective on the importance of the customer, uh, the importance of customer satisfaction, the importance of enticing and holding on to customers, um, and, the, and, and the value of a customer. So in our organization now, we are focusing on not so much always focusing on how to increase ridership, but what is the value yes. of, every, of every customer? What is the net present value of securing a 19-year-old today through a fair offer that's going to entice them to stay with us through their career till they retire at uh, 76 or whatever date right. they, they decide to right. What is the value of customer acquisition and keeping that customer all into the future? Well, that's really and, entrepreneurial. And when, when you start to think like that, then, yeah. you, then you have a different approach to yeah. what your marketing strategy is and what your marketing spend is and just how you approach your, your, your communities that you want to shift. That's wonderful. What a great approach. And how long were you at ScotRail? Two years. Okay. And what did you do before that? Um, before that, I, for four years, managed um, London Northeast, which is all of the railways infrastructure from London up to Edinburgh, which, okay. is, which is sort of all of the eastern side of the, um, the United Kingdom, which mm -hmm. is sort of a, a quarter, I think, of, of, of the UK's railway. And before that, I was deputy CEO of Irish Rail, in the southern part of Ireland. Okay. And before that, in London, and ran for four years with Andy Byford, worked through um, London Southeastern Rail. 
And we turned that around from a loss-making enterprise into a profitable enterprise. And then you both end up in, in both Canada. Both end up in Canada, yeah. yeah. It's a small world, <laughs> it isn't is. it? Yeah, that's great. Let's turn our eyes forward now for your agency. You've told us a little bit about what your planning function and all, but um, you've got a bunch of big projects right on the horizon. Tell me about how you're implementing this, this business-friendly approach toward transit and a business approach toward transit. How are you implementing that in the next three to five years here? Yeah, that's a great question. Our biggest and most urgent challenge is to take our recently awarded three transit projects, which is classic downtown relief line south, which would now be the Ontario line, which is a longer version, twice as long as the old idea of downtown relief line south, the Scarborough extension, as well as the Young North subway extension of line one to take those three projects and to put them on a different footing to put them on a footing that will make them good projects for the market to bid on and at the same time get these projects to be deliverable within the scheduled time as well as within budget and then there's a fourth subway project we've been awarded by the government, and that is the Eglinton West extension. So you, you this afternoon going to yes. go to Eglinton Crosstown. Okay. And then as, as you're at Mount Dennis, young Matt here will point you towards where Eglinton West extension would go, which okay. is into Etobicoke, into the Etobicoke area. So those four projects need to be given a huge push, a huge momentum to get them off the ground. In a sense, if ever there's a commercial essential decision to be made, or many of them, it is about how you proceed um, with these projects. How do we procure them? Um, how do we, um, in some cases, bundle it together in one or fragment it in multiple parts in order to get the right momentum and the right speed of build into it? And I'm a very practical person. If I look at the Scarborough extension and how important it is for the communities in Scarborough um, and for, the, for, for, for that part of Toronto, we're going to move at speed to get that built as quickly as possible. And if I look at Eglinton West, and again, the communities on the western side of Toronto, we're, we're going to do the same there and, and, and move rapidly. But then, and you'd be familiar with this, um, when, when you're in transit and you've got money to build stuff, Everything's a priority. Right. Yet everyone wants everything and they yeah. want it yesterday. And so figuring out how to get this very ambitious subway program to start and to be phased and to be delivered in a sequence and in a schedule mm -hmm. that allows the market to bid in it properly, into it properly, and gets the most from the market and to make it practical and not just put everything on the market at once is a real challenge for us. Yes, and so we're working, working very closely with our supply chain. We're doing market soundings and listening okay, carefully. Okay, that's good, yes. Because you're going to be bringing in cars from all kinds of builders probably, right? CAF or Bombardier Des or... Even more, yes. even more designers, design yes. engineers. Oh, yeah. And so if you think of the engineering support that we have on yes. these projects, we, we want them we don't want to spread that market too thin 
because if we employ four or five engineering companies in the design on our side, yes. they are conflicted out from being part of tendering groups on the other side of the fence. Right. And then we've shrunk the market in one place. Well, we need the market to be strong on the tendering side as well as on our side for right. the development. So we need to think through all of those angles, and we are. And that's our biggest, that's a very big challenge. It sounds like it, yeah. But you see, the thing is, in the end, got to keep in mind the impact that these projects have. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, yeah. it's transformational, and therefore, the degree of complexity is, is, is a minor matter. Uh, it's, we're going to deal with it, yes. and we keep on focusing on the prize, which is to get these built. Yep. I was telling my daughter, Jenna, who was with us on the tour today, I said, honey, these guys are working on vehicles that tens of thousands of people rely on every day. Their whole life is really about getting that ride in so they can get to work and do, or do what they need to do in the city and get back home. It's the impact of what we're doing. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. It's, it's, you, you, it's, you know what, and, and you'll, you'll, probably, you'll probably identify with this as much as I do, but I, I sometimes get asked, why do you put so much energy into what you do? Yeah. What, what drives you? you know, what, why, why do you do all of these things? And where does the passion come from? And, and I always give the same answer. Is that when you, go on any, when you go on any of our concourses of our big, big stations, such as Union, and you see hundreds and thousands of people streaming off yes. the concourse, so the word I use for that is it's just one thing, it's humbling. Mm. It's humbling to understand what an impact we in our operations make every day on the people that travel, on the local economy, um, and that impact that you make. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that's more of a motivator than just seeing the success of a transit system that really works to move people from point A to point B every day. That's right, yeah. I think people like you who have worked in this industry for a while, they really are motivated to me by love for others, by service to others. Oh, absolutely. That's what's driving us. We want to, we want to improve people's lives. Absolutely. So let's wrap up the whole conversation then with one other area, which I understand is one of your key areas, and that is the culture of the agency and how you're putting safety first in the culture of the agency and how you're making sure that it's not siloed to just the safety managers. I mean, I saw it today myself, walking through the safety areas and, you know, I was a guest, so sometimes you'll get a little bit more of a safety pep talk at the beginning, of, but I could see how it was interwoven throughout your whole agency. Tell us about how you're changing the culture of this whole agency in this region to make safety number one. Well, Fantastic that you picked up on that, and I'll reward Matt later with a salary increase for sharing that with you. But here's the thing. Throughout my 20, 25 years of working in different industries and different businesses, what has been very obvious to me is that whether it was my own business or suppliers working for me or customers that I worked for, Organizations that focuses on safety, safety of the customer, safety of the people, safety of the infrastructure, safety of the operations, were always the organizations that were just better at a lot of other stuff as well. Mm. These were it's organizations. Like a indicator, right? Absolutely. I see safety as a primary indicator of a business well run. 
And when, when I look at my construction sites and our constructors, I can tell you from the safety practice on that site, which companies are the most profitable. It's that important a driver of the culture of an organization. And I don't, don't want to say anything about other organizations, but I just want to say, I very often see safety being listed as important, very much as a lip service or a genuine awareness that safety is really crucial, but without it being made part of the DNA and the fabric of an organization. And we have this, this thing about having what we call um, safety moments. And we start every meeting with everyone in the room, whether it's finance people, operational people, construction people, doesn't matter. Marketing people, HR people. We start a meeting with a safety moment where you talk about your own personal safety experiences because safety is not about work. It's about how you are, it's how you are at home. And, and we've had, we, I have a policy, for example, that everyone in the organization will have a thorough training in, in first aid. And we're about two thirds, after two years, we're about two thirds, nearly three quarters through training everyone in a very thorough first aid course. And the number of people that have come back with personal stories on saving, literally saving the lives of it. One person came with a story of saving the life of, an, of, of one of their grandchildren, which was choking on, uh, on a biscuit or something. Yeah. Through to people, we, we had one example, and again, I'll, I'll just use the example to, to, to clarify, but a lady who works in our marketing department, small petite lady, who felt after first aid training confident to do emergency help on a burly construction worker that fell over in a train wow. and to intervene and to act. Yes. And I'm just saying the contrast in physical, right, yeah. because there are many reasons why people would or wouldn't participate yes. in, in, in helping, she was helping in emergencies. She was confident and comfortable. We've built up a narrative of stories like that, which is a really, really important part of the DNA. But when you look at our organization, we link our customer charter and our safety charter as promises we make to our communities and our people. And so for me, safety is that, that inherent sort of North Star type DNA thing that drives you. And then the next, important thing that's on the list that links closely to that as a charter commitment for an organization is what we do with customers and, right. and customer satisfaction. And then it's been, it's been fantastic. I would say, if you ask me how far we are on our safety journey, I would say 30% of the way. Okay. So you got a ways to go. You still push it. I, we, we still have so much to do. That's wonderful. Safety for me. And even, even though we've upped our game in safety about two or 300%. Yes, your performance has gone. We can yes. go more. Well, and, and in the process, just give you a stat. Okay. We've reduced our, um, long, uh, our, our, our lost time injury frequency rate in the last year and a half, where it's been static for a long time at a, certain, at a level, we've reduced it by about 25% in the last year or so. That's wonderful. And so it Safety is worth- pays dividends too, doesn't it? it? Yeah. It absolutely does. Yeah. But it also tells our people in our community that we care. Yes. And that's important. Last question I want to ask you about is something I was, I was fascinated by and very impressed with. We're walking through your maintenance facilities for your trains, and up on the wall is a TV screen. 
that has your key performance indicators of what's happening today on the rail, on time performance, for the month, for the quarter. I've never seen that, where the maintenance workers are tuned in to what is happening on my rail line today. Was that your idea? Yes. Wonderful. Tell me about that. So it's something I've followed in the UK as well, and which, which, which I think is crucially important. Part of our change of our organization over the last two years from what it was to what I call a business was to implement a good, thorough, solid set of key performance indicators. And it has been huge in the impact it has had on my, on my organization, on my top team, and on the mid-level managers. People just want to know how well are we doing? How well are they doing? Right. But the most important thing of those KPIs that we've implemented like that, which mm -hmm. is then very visible in the organization, is everyone in my organization affects, even the HR people, even the finance people, affects customer satisfaction in some shape or form, whether it's through whatever decision they make. And creating that awareness, whether it's with a, with a KPI screen in the maintenance uh, workshops, or whether it's through a good review of what we're delivering in information technology solutions, or in finance, or in HR. If HR recruits people and get them in position in 75 days, the organization is a less better place than if they recruit them in 70 days. And if they understand that if they recruit them in 65 days, we as an organization are gonna be even better in our customer satisfaction then everyone can link what they do to the outcomes of the business. And I think that alignment, which is not always easy to achieve, is a really important thing to chase. And keeping those numbers in front of people is a way to help yeah. that happen, right? Yeah, and, and, and helping people to understand that if some of those KPIs are red and we're missing target, it's not the end of the world. It just means we're missing the target. Right. And it just means we can now go and figure out new ways to go back and try and hit the target. So it's interesting. In the beginning, when you do stuff like this, people think red on a KPI means failure, and it doesn't. Red is one of the best indicators you've got because it's telling you to focus on something that you can change. What a great way to wrap it up. Phil, this whole Ontario area is very well served by you. I can see this in your role here, and it's an honor to speak with you today on Transit Ontario. Why well, is it an honor for me to talk to you? Yes, yeah. thank you. Best wishes as you continue to grow this transit network into the best it can be. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com.